everybody. You're listening to Christ Fellowship based in Northeast Florida. We believe that we are broken by life, healed by his grace, and lifted together. Join us as we dive into God's word together each week. Genesis chapter 6 verse 5, the problem passages. And if you've forgotten or if this is the first time you've been part of this series, it is simply this, that there are plenty of parts of the Bible that we like, lots of parts of the Bible that we enjoy, lots of parts that are very uplifting, lots of parts that are encouraging. And we're okay with that. But what ends up happening is when you look at the Bible as a whole, you start seeing things that stick out as though they are problematic in their presentation of the character of God. Seemingly as though they have nothing to do with the God that we have been introduced to through the person of Jesus Christ. And what ends up happening is in our lives, we either make an agreement inside ourselves that, well, maybe that's not really the word of God. Or maybe that's not really what God meant. Or maybe that's not really the right translation. And a bunch of other things that come to our mind. Because what ends up happening is there is a cognitive dissonance that cannot seem to bring together. The issues of the God that seems so loving and compassionate. And then when we come face to face with passages that seem to arrest or discount his grace and mercy in our lives. The problem with that is, is if you're going to take any part of the Bible seriously, you have to take it all seriously. Or you have to get rid of all of it. The reason simply being this, the Bible itself says it's all or nothing. If you go to the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 2, verse 16, chapter 3, verse 16, it will say that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for reproof, correction, and exhortation. It's useful to let you know that what you think you're doing right is not the right way. Let's fix it. It's useful to let you know you know you're doing wrong. Knock it off. And it's useful to encourage you, whether you're having a good day, a bad day, or a so-so day, whether you've messed it up or whether you've gotten it right, it is useful to encourage you. And when it says all scripture, that means I've got to go from Genesis 1, 1, all the way to Revelation 22, 20, and I can't leave anything out. I might not understand why it's all God-breathed. I might not understand why it all fits together. I might not understand right now why all of it is useful for those things. But I cannot come to the Bible with an attitude that says, well, I like this part. And I can deal with this part, and I don't like this part. It doesn't seem to fit, and let's just dismiss it. No, God requires us to know all of him. Now, not know all of him right now, otherwise we would explode or we would fall apart from having to know all of the deity and divinity of him. But the attitude that when he says something in his word, even if at the moment... He has not demonstrated to me, explained to me, or shown me how it fits into his character on faith. By what he has shown me, I accept it as one day, God, I'll understand. Did you know that one of the most frustrating things for the world is when they come to us and say, well, what about this scripture? I don't like this scripture. What do I do about this? You tell me your God is all about love. You said he accepts me as I, well, what do I do with these scriptures that seem to reject me? And we look at them and say, well, just get over it. Just deal with it. Just hide it under the rug. Don't worry about that too much. That disenchants a world and it breaks the hearts of Christians because what ends up happening is when we reject parts of the word of God because we can't seem to fit them into our idea or our understanding of God, what ends up happening is Satan just creeps in and says, well, if that part's not true, what about this part where he says he died for you and he saved you? And if that part's not true, then it means you're still just as messed up as you were before you met him, which means you have no hope. And if that part's not true, then the whole thing is off, which means he probably didn't even send his son. And if that's it, the whole thing falls apart. When you take a dishonest look at the Bible and say, because I don't understand, 
I will toss it aside and never deal with it again. I'm not saying you have to understand everything now. What I am saying is we ought to be honest with ourselves when we come face to face with certain passages that seem to arrest our understanding of God and force us to come to grips with the reality that we don't know everything. And that's all right. That is a more honest answer than most people will give you. Did you know that I have very little understanding of the Bible? Despite the fact that I can quote it better than most people, and I'm not saying that I'm better than everybody else in here, I'm just saying I have a memory that for some reason clings to the Bible and forgets where I left my keys two seconds ago, which I don't know where they're at in this building right now, which is going to be a problem in about 30 minutes. I have a memory that seems to cleave onto it, and yet... I still understand very little of it. I do my best to explain. I do my best to preach. I do my best to dialogue. But at the end of the day, all I can really do is say, until God reveals it to me, I got nothing. And I can help you walk through it. I can help you work through it. I can help you navigate the scriptures. But what I can't do is force you to understand. Only God can reveal it to you. So today we're going to deal with another problem passage. And the reason we've been dealing with these is because I want to highlight the parts of the Bible that I think have a tendency to come up so often and give us pause and say, God, I don't understand. Can I really trust you? And so that's why we find ourselves in the book of Genesis, chapter 6, verse 5. And it says simply this, Then the Lord God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And here is our problem verse, And the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth, and was grieved in his heart. I thought God came to die for us. I thought God came to save us. I thought God came to redeem us. That means he loved me very, very much. That means he wants to be a part of my life very, very much. That means he wants to engage with me. What do I do? When a gospel that is preached that says God stepped down from his throne in heaven, came down to earth as a little baby, didn't come down like a baby, actually came as a baby, meaning he actually had the flesh of a baby. Very tender, very squishy, very round, and very bouncy. Like all little babies are, not able to do anything for himself. Even though he is God incarnate, he came as this little baby who couldn't speak, who couldn't walk, had to learn all of those things from mommy and daddy. As Mary and Joseph saw his first step, the same God that was able to speak the world into existence said, I will make myself as the least that man is. I will understand what it is to be hungry. I'll understand what it is to be lonely. I'll understand what it is to be betrayed by my closest friends. I will understand what it is to feel the lust and the temptation grip my heart so much that I feel as though I will explode, and yet I will sin not. What kind of God is it that says all of that and in the same breath can say, I'm sorry I ever made you? Preacher, I thought, I thought God loved us. I thought he died for us. How can he say he died for us when it seems like we come to the book of Genesis and we just go ahead and see God saying, I'm sorry I ever made you. And a lot of us try and get by with that and we say, well, it's just Old Testament. We don't need the Old. I don't have to worry about the Old Testament. Since it's the Old Testament and we live in the New Testament, we don't have to worry about that. Do you know what really we're saying with the Old Testament and New Testament? We're, set, we're talking about covenant. If you don't know what a covenant is, let me just give you a quick understanding of a covenant. A covenant is very similar to a marriage. You ever seen how the bride walks down the middle between the groom and the bride's side? You want to know why you split the families apart? It's not because they can't get along. It's because the idea is that what is happening as the bride walks down, she is making a statement that between I and my husband, these two families are now intimately connected. And if my husband and I break apart, the reason why they're sitting apart, let us be torn asunder. 
That's why there is such a difference in, I know we've made it more into just this liturgy and this kind of tradition. Are you on the bride or the groom's side? Are you on this side or that? No, the reality is, is that it is supposed to be in statement of what a covenant is to God. That in a covenant, something happens where two things are joined together so intimately that if they are ever separated, they are ripped to pieces. So Old Testament is meant to be Old Covenant. New Testament is meant to be New Covenant. What's Old Covenant? Old Covenant is when you got Moses showing up and he's got the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. No, 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 no. And then we get to the New Testament and Jesus comes along and we don't have to live under the law anymore. Now we get to live under grace. I love when people say that because 90% of the time when people say, well, I don't have to live under the law. I have to live under grace. What they're really saying is leave me alone. I want to do what I want to do that's wrong and just... Jesus covered it all. It's fine, all right? I don't care. One of the best things, does anybody remember when the internet first started? I was around. I had a Juno email. That's an old thing to say. I didn't think I would ever say that. I think my back just hurt as I said that. I had a Juno email. But as the internet started to gain notoriety and became more ubiquitous and around everywhere, they've started this thing called peer-to-peer sharing where you could share music online. And if you had a CD that I like, I could go ahead and download it. And everybody was fine with that until all of a sudden we realized it's illegal. And we started to realize, well, this music that I got, and I'm downloading Christian music now. I'm just singing praises to Jesus with my pirated music in the car. And I'm going down the road, and one day God came to me and said, you got to get rid of that CD. I said, it's praising you, Jesus. Why do I have to get rid of it? It's good music. This is DC Talk in their prime. You want me to get rid of that? He said, it's stolen. I said, I don't, I don't hear that very well, God. Do you have an email you can send that to me? Because I don't think I don't. And I would just kind of stick my hands in my ear and sing to myself like, I don't want to hear God telling me this. That's kind of what we do. Oh, I'm under the grace. I'm not under the law. We just use it as a license to say, well, I don't have to worry about these things anymore. You want to know what's interesting about Jesus when he showed up? Do not think I have come to abolish the law, but fulfill the law. Now, that's a problem because when we like to say, well, I'm under grace, not under the law. We like to think, well, that means I don't have to deal with the law anymore. What really happened is that Jesus comes and takes the law, and by saying I fulfilled it, he says, I'm able to keep every single one of these rules perfectly in both my heart, mind, soul, and action. And what that ends up doing is something terribly awful for you as a human. Because what it means is that once you become saved and the Holy Spirit enters into your heart, the same Holy Spirit that was there at the beginning of the inception of all creation, the same Holy Spirit that came down like a dove and landed on Jesus when he was being baptized, that same Holy Spirit, Jesus says, you will receive power to be my witnesses. You want to know what kind of power he's talking about? Raising the dead's nice. Healing people's nice. Opening blind eyes is nice. You want to know what speaks a little bit more powerfully than that? When I used to live one way, but now that the Holy Spirit has so changed my life, it is though I have become a completely different person. You want to know what's so terrible about Jesus fulfilling the law? He did it by the power of the Holy Spirit. And if the Holy Spirit lives in me, that means by his grace, I am capable of fulfilling the law. Not in and of myself. We see how much we mess that up. And even if I can fulfill the law by his grace, I'm still a hot mess. Don't worry about it. That's not, it means that I don't have an excuse to sin anymore. When I was under the law, I couldn't keep the law, and so I had an excuse. God, this is too high a bar. I can't do it. I don't know what to, I can't make this work anymore. Once Jesus showed up, all of a sudden it became, by the grace of God, by the blood of Jesus, as long as I'm resting on his grace, I am now capable of living within the bonds of a relationship that lets me fulfill the law. Do you understand how much harder that is? 
being under grace, as wonderful as it is, as freeing as it is, it comes with a certain condition that says, just keep in mind, I've given you more than enough that now you don't have to sin. Now, I get it. We do still sin because, let's be honest, you're you and I'm me. It doesn't excuse it. My dear children, I write this to you that you don't sin. But if you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, meaning you're not allowed to sin. Don't do it. No excuse. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't. Whatever it is, you don't have an excuse. And John says as he's writing that, but since I know how messed up you are and how messed up I am, when you do sin, keep something in mind. The grace is greater than the sin. Preacher, what's all this got to do? We like to say it's Old Testament, so I don't have to worry about that anymore. We like to look at things in the Old Testament that are difficult to us, that we have a hard time processing, that we cannot seem to fit with the person of Christ. And we say, well, I'm not in the Old Testament anymore. I'm now in the New Testament. When the reality is, is when Jesus showed up, he said, I came to grab all of the Old Testament and bring it into myself so that in the New Testament, now it has a full growth. Meaning the Old Testament was the seed, and the New Testament is the blooming of the flower. Meaning the Old Testament, I can't get the New Testament without the Old Testament. If I do away with the Old Testament, I can't have the New Testament. Everybody thinks that when you plant a seed in the ground, all of a sudden the seed's gone. No, it doesn't go away. It just turns into roots and a stem and stalks and flower. Nothing is lost from the Old Testament. It is every bit as applicable today as it was then. The difference is that now because of the person of Christ, rather than having to worry about getting every single thing right at every single time, otherwise God will strike me dead, now because of the person of Christ, it is God when I mess this up, he gets to come to me and say, listen, I already paid the price that was supposed to come down on you, so instead of you having to die, now I get to have a talk with you and help you become more than you ever thought you could be. You thought that thing was going to control you for your whole life, and I should have killed you with what you were in, but since my son died and redeemed you and you put your faith in him and all of the other things that come with it, now instead of doing that, I get to have a relationship with God and he gets to transform me rather than destroy me. But it means all of the Old Testament still applies. And if that's the case, what do I do when God says, I'm sorry I ever made man and in the same breath he says, surely he has borne our iniquity. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. By his stripes we are. What do I do with the same God that says, I was willing to take all the brokenness of your life and lay it on my son? But he also says, I'm sorry I ever made you. You want to know what's happening in the book of Genesis? When the author's writing that, when God is having him pen that down, you want to know what's happening? We're seeing how much God loves us. We read that and we think, well, God is just so disappointed in me that he wants nothing to do with me. I've messed up so bad that God is frustrated with me and he's done with me and he wants nothing to do with me. We see that and we think that we have so embarrassed God. And even now, Satan likes to come in and put that little lie in our mind. You've done this in your past. You've done this in your past. Yes, God has redeemed you. Yes, God has saved you. Satan doesn't have a problem letting you know you're redeemed and saved if you are redeemed and saved. What he likes to do, though, is he likes to come in and say, but even though you're redeemed and saved, you're so messed up that it doesn't really matter. You're so consumed by that thing. You're so much like your father or so much like your mother. Or this has been in your family for so long. Or you've been stuck in this stronghold or this addiction for so long that you have no hope. You're the worst witness God has ever had. You might be going to heaven, but you're worthless here on earth. He loves to feed those lies in to cripple us. 
Because if he can't take us to hell with him, then he'll at least make us feel like we're living on hell on earth. If he can't have you for eternity, he'll love to just mess with you for temporary. And we see that passage and we think, oh God, I've embarrassed you so much. All I've done is ruined your name. All I've done is made a mess of everything and it can't be fixed at all unless you just completely destroy everything. No, that passage belies something much, much deeper. Think back with me just for a moment before earth is created. Before all things come into existence that we get to enjoy. Think back to when God had created the angels. Now, we weren't told what happened there. We're just told that there's angels, okay? We understand that they were created because they're not God. The only thing that ever has been and always has been and always will be is God. Nothing else has that capacity except him, which means the angels were created. Now, look at creation and see the way God creates. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was void, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the earth, and God said, all of a sudden, whatever he says comes into being. God said, let there be light. God said, let there be an expanse. God said, let there be waters, let there be land. So every time God creates, he speaks. And even though we weren't there, even though we're not given insight to how it happened, we do know that God is consistent in and of himself. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, which means by his word is how he creates. So when he's creating angels, he speaks them into existence. So now you're up in heaven. And we know about three archangels. We like to have all these other ones. I know that some churches say, well, we've got about seven archangels. I don't know if that's true. I haven't seen anywhere in the Bible. But I do know that there's three named in our 66 books. We've got Gabriel. Gabriel plays the trumpet. Gabriel is a musician and likes to sound what God is going to do. He is the herald of God. Anytime you want to get news from God in the Old Testament, and probably soon coming when Jesus decides to come back, it's going to be Gabriel. He shows up, blows his trumpet, and then says, here's what God's saying. Then you have Michael. I like Michael because Michael is the warrior and the champion of God. How do I know that? Because Michael is the one that went toe-to-toe with Satan when they were fighting over the bones of Moses. I don't know why they were fighting over the bones of Moses. God got to have the spirit of Moses and bring him home to be in eternity with him. But for some reason, Satan wanted to grab hold of those bones. And God sends Michael down, his champion, his head of all the angels and the armies of heaven, and says, you go fight it. Michael, I... I'm going to be so disappointed if I get to heaven and Michael is just a string bean. I'm like, you? Where's the muscles? Where's the veins coming out of the neck? Where's the traps looking like they're crawling up to your ears? Where is the back that looks like you're a butterfly when you just stand there? Where are the thighs? How could you have skipped leg day, Michael? I hope he is just jacked beyond all measure. I will be so confused when I get to heaven. He just walks up to me with like Coke bottle glasses from the 1960s and he's very skinny and he just stands there like, hey, how you doing? I was like, you? You're the defender? He'll probably knock me out at that point. (laughs) You got Gabriel the herald, Michael the champion, and Lucifer, the leader of worship. You ever notice how music is so integral to our lives? You ever notice how even if you can't hold a tune in a bucket, you ever notice how even if you're awful at everything with music, you can't sing, you can't dance, there's nothing musical about you. You ever notice how even those people love music? 
All different types of music. My personal preference, I love blues. Put on some Eric Clapton and let me hear the way that guitar sings. That is fantastic. I love it. Some of you like rap. I don't know why. I'll pray for you. And all the, but there's so much music out there that it just speaks to every heart and soul. And it's wonderful and it's a fantastic gift from God. But is it any wonder that it seems like even though we're such musical beings, that the world is filled with music that does nothing but celebrate the brokenness of humanity? And it's hard not to like it because, man, it has some good music. It has some good beats. Some of those singers are fantastic. And you hear it, and you're like, I don't know what to do. This doesn't glorify God. This is so debased. But at the same time, it sounds fantastic. You want to know why music that the world has sounds so good? Because Lucifer's forte in heaven was art. We say he was the minister of worship. Worship goes so much further than just music. It is how you live your life every single day in glory of God. It is how you play an organ or a piano or a guitar so that every time you strike a chord, it is meant to glorify God. It is that every time you open your mouth that the vocal cords as they begin to vibrate to whatever tune and whatever sound and whatever pitch and whatever height of volume is meant to glorify God. And Lucifer stood at the front of all of heaven before all the angels and would conduct them in eternal worship before God and what he would do is he would conduct all of them in worship take that and then present it to God Almighty and one day he looks at God and says I don't think I want to give you this anymore in fact I'm the one that makes all of this sound so good God I don't understand why I got to share this with you I'm the one making sure the angels sound good they'd sound like trash if it wasn't for me Gabriel wouldn't even know how to play that trumpet if I hadn't taught him and on and on and all of a sudden Lucifer says these words I will ascend to the most high. And you know what God does all of a sudden when Lucifer stands before him? And by the way, he's such a good con artist, he convinced a third of the angels, I bet I can take God. You ever seen a kid who says, I can beat up my dad? I remember one time in high school, mom and I were not getting along as is wont to happen when a teenage boy butts heads with his parents. And I thought I knew best, and my mom said, you're grounded. I said, you can't ground me. I'd like to see you stop me from leaving this house. And so I start walking towards the door, and she stands and jumps in front of me. Now, I'm not going to hit my mom because I don't want God to instantly kill me. So I go to the other door, and she calls for dad. Dennis, he's trying to leave through another door. So my dad goes and gets in front of that door. Now I'm thinking to myself, well, you're a guy. I'll hit you, and just keep something in mind, old man. I am a state wrestler. I have been to nationals, and you, sir, are getting old and slow. And I looked at my dad and said, get out of my way. And he said, sit down in the chair. And I said, I can take you, sir. You want to know why I thought that? Because anytime my dad and I would wrestle... I was dominant. I could crush him. I could cripple him. There was nothing he could do to break my grip. I was fantastic at taking him down. And we were there sitting at a chair, and he said, sit down. And I stood right up and put my nose on his nose, and he grabbed my shirt collar and sat me down. And I thought to myself, there's no way that's going to fly in this house anymore. You're not taking me out of anywhere. And I stood right back up and got even closer in his face. And I don't remember what his face looked like, and I don't remember what else happened because it happened so fast. All that I can bring to my recollection is all of a sudden I was moving upstairs faster than my feet could move. And I wasn't really touching the ground because my dad had me by the shirt collar and was dragging me upstairs. Takes me to my room. 
throws me to my bed, which is at the back wall of the room, by the way, and says, sit there and don't come out. And I said, yes. I thought I could beat my dad up. 16 years old, state wrestler, full of abs and muscles and all of the testosterone that any man could need. Dad, you can't touch me. I think I'll stay in my room tonight, Dad. You didn't tell me to do that. I just made a decision that it was the best thing for me to do. I think I'll go to sleep now. Somehow Satan convinces all of a third of the angels, I can take this guy. He's old. When's the last time you've seen him create? We've been up here for millennia upon millennia. Worshiping him, he just does nothing but sit there in his throne. We can go ahead and do that. In fact, he wouldn't be anything if we weren't giving him worship. And guess who controls the worship? Me. So I'll tell you what, angels. Let's go ahead and get rid of this old man we don't need anymore. We'll just set him off to the side, and we'll do things our way, the way we want to. You want to know what God does when all of a sudden Satan shows up? By the way, since he knows everything, he knows the whole plot going on. He's probably just sitting there doing his crosswords, sitting in his chair like, I wonder when they're going to show up and try and throw me off. And he's just going back and forth. And then Satan shows up with all this army that he's amassed, one-third of the angels, and looks at God and says, God, I'm here for your throne. I like to think God likes to wear his glasses like a really old man like this. Where is it? And God's doing his Sudoku or whatever it is he does up in heaven. And he looks up, fixes his glasses and looks at Satan. And he probably just says, out. Not the thundering of his voice, not the booming, not the wrath and the fury of God. He probably just looked at Satan and said, out. You know what the Bible says? It says, I saw Satan fall like lightning. Now, these are the angels. Now, let's come to humanity. You see Adam and Eve there in the Garden of Eden. And every end of the day, I don't know how long they were. I am prone to think that they were there for quite a few millennia, maybe even millions or billions of years, because I don't believe that it went day one, two, three, four, five, six, and then all of a sudden they rest on day seven. Adam and Eve enjoyed day seven. Day eight, they get kicked out of the Garden of Eden. I don't think that's how fast it happened. I know it reads like that, but I don't think that's... Because it says that when God comes down to the garden, they heard the sound of his feet walking. Do you know how close you have to be to someone where you can recognize the cadence of their feet on grass? Have you ever walked on grass? It's very, very quiet. It's very easy to sneak up on people if you're walking barefoot on grass. And it says they heard the sound of his feet walking upon the grass. They were best friends with God. Satan shows up, leader of worship in heaven. God, I'm taking your throne. God just looks at Satan and says... You're excused. Adam and Eve bite into an apple. And yeah, we have the curses that God places on Adam and Eve. We have all that. But now look at the conversation he has with the devil who used to be in charge of worship. Cursed are you among all animals. For the rest of your days, you will crawl on your stomach and you will eat dirt. You ever had dirt get stuck in your mouth? It's miserable. If you don't get it out, it just feels like it robs you of all moisture in your body. It is as though it chokes you. Cursed are you among all animals for the rest of your days. You will eat dirt. And then he comes to this part. And I will put enmity 
between her seed and your seed. What's enmity? He says, I will put eternal hatred. Never in all of creation until that point had God been roused to wrath and fury. Never in all of creation until that moment when Satan came and deceived Adam and Eve had God ever been so full of absolute unrequited rage that he looked at one of his creations and says, for eternity, you and I will hate each other. Satan shows up in heaven. God, I've got a third of your angels. I'm going to kick you off that throne, and God just excuses him. You may go, and Satan falls like light. Now, all of a sudden, Satan comes and messes with Adam and Eve, and God says, I will rip you limb from limb. I will rend you. You might have a moment in time, Satan, where you strike the heel and cause the eternal Son of God, the Son of Man, to limp for a while. But even though you make him limp for a while, I will make sure that he crushes your head. You can recover from a bruised heel. You don't get better once someone has crushed your head. You want to know what God says when he says, I'm sorry that I created man? What he's really saying is that there's nothing else in all of creation that so breaks his heart the way we do. That there is only one thing in all of creation that when God looks at it, that when that creation is having a hard time, that when that creation is having a bad day, that when that creation sins or rebels against God, that when that creation is going through such traumatic scenarios that all it feels like it is is breaking them down to the ground, there is only one thing in all of creation that when God sees it in distress, it breaks his heart to the point of such grief and despair and sorrow, and it is you and it's me. Nothing else in all of creation has God so intimately tied himself to. He is perfect beyond all measure. He is eternal in every facet. He has need of nothing. He doesn't need love from you. He doesn't need food from you. He doesn't need your friendship or your compassion or your fellowship. He needs nothing from you. And yet when he looks at you because of the way he has created you, he says there's only something in all the universe that I have created, that when they are in pain, it strikes me to the depth of my heart. There is only something in all creation that when I see them sinning and they're unable to escape from that sin, and it looks as though it's tearing them limb from limb, it strikes me so deep in my heart that it tears me, I, the perfect God, asunder as though my heart is about to break into a thousand pieces. There is nothing else in all of creation that God cares so deeply about except for you. That verse when it says he's sorry that he had made man, What he's doing is he's seeing the brokenness of what he had taken such care to create. What he's saying is I'm seeing the pain and the sorrow and the suffering that sin is ravaging and ripping through their hearts and minds and souls to the point where it is leaving them so broken that they would rather be dead than alive. That they would rather be drugged up than have to face life. That they would rather be unconscious than in existence. That they would rather hurt each other than be close to each other because they're so broken that all they can do is hurt each other even though they're desperate for intimacy with each other. What God is saying when he says, I'm sorry I've made man, what he's saying is I cannot help but feel so much pain when I see my children suffering. We think when we read that passage, it's God saying, I'm fed up. I'm tired. I want nothing more to do with you. What God is saying is I can't handle the pain anymore of watching you in pain. I don't know why, but sometimes Judah comes running to me, and when it's something legitimate, not a tantrum, and I don't mean legitimate to me, I mean legitimate to him. He comes running to me because a balloon popped, and he's in tears over it. It's a balloon. I'll get you another one. 
it's five cents. I'll get you another one. But in that moment when he comes running to me because something has happened in his life so distressing, even though I can fix it very easily, even though I have the means and the ability to fix it very easily, in those brief moments where his tears are rolling down his face, it strikes me so deep in my heart as though I begin to feel the very sorrow he's feeling. Can God fix every problem in your life? Yes. Does he care about you enough to do it in some fashion? Yes. Is he going to do it the way we want it? Probably not. That doesn't mean he's forgotten about you. That doesn't mean he's ignored you. That doesn't mean he doesn't care for you. Keep something in mind. When you feel like life has broken you down, or when you feel like you've messed it up so badly that you've embarrassed God, all God can think to himself is, I just wish I could bring my daughter close. I just wish I could bring my son close and hold them tightly in my arms while they cry, while they're broken, and let them know I'm here for them. Some of the best times I have had with my son, now that they've passed, at the moment they were awful, but some of the best times I've had with Judah and that I've had with Leo already is when to them they have had a catastrophe happen and they climb in my arms, and they're crying, and I'm crying, and all I'm doing is holding them. None of you in here touch my heart that way. I'm not saying I don't care about you. And it does pain me when I see you going through pain and suffering, and I hate it, and I wish I could fix every single thing. But when my son is the one in sorrow, it is as though my heart is arrested and cannot do anything else but be focused on his pain. When it says God was sorry that he made man, what it was is he is seeing the brokenness of humanity and how full of grief they are because he loves them so much. The only thing happening to him is that pure sorrow is arresting the heart of God that he can do nothing but sit there and cry with his children. Now I realize the next thing after those passages eventually comes the flood. We can get into that another time. We can talk about how that fits in and all those other things. That won't be a sermon next week. If you want to talk about it, that's fine. I'm always available to have those conversations and we can work through it and you might find some satisfactory answers or you might not. I don't know. But nothing changes. That as God created, he speaks, and then all of a sudden he gets to Adam and Eve. And rather than speaking, he takes a pause. And he picks up dirt, begins to form them piece by piece, starting with wherever he starts. I don't know, maybe he formed the heart first, and then from there he formed the rib cage around it to protect that heart and all the organs and then from out of there forms the rest of the skeleton then he begins to attach the muscles and sinews and then puts all the veins to carry the synapses and the neurological firings from the brain so that they can go ahead and communicate with those muscles and the heart and everything so that it begins to work and then he layers skin upon layer of skin so that then there is an encasing to protect all of that and then when he's all done he begins to carve out the nose and make that perfect and carve out the eyes and these eyes will look this way and these eyes will look this and then he begins to put on the hair on Adam and when he's done he pulls it close and breathes into it. You see nowhere else in all of creation where God takes such delicate care than when he makes Adam and when he makes Eve. 
he was sorry he'd made man. He wasn't apologizing for making man. He was filled with so much pain by watching his children suffer. And make no mistake, when he sees you going through pain, it grieves him. When he sees you going through things that maybe you've done to yourself, maybe it's your own fault that you found yourself in such an awful place, he doesn't look at you and cross his arms and say, I told you so, fix it and maybe do better. No, it's the same grief that comes to him saying, I just want to help you be more like me. When life has struck you so hard that it feels as though it's going to leave you crippled, he doesn't walk around and look away and say, well, I don't have time to deal with it. No, what ends up happening is he comes down off his throne, wraps his arms around you and says, I'll be right here with you in the same sorrow and pain you are. Make no mistake, while God is almighty, all-powerful, and has need of nothing, he has purposefully so intimately connected himself to you and to me so that he never leaves us alone when we are in pain or sorrow. He celebrates with us when there's a time to celebrate. He weeps with us when there's a time to weep. He grits his teeth with us when the pain is so much to bear that all we can do is just bear down and try and survive it. Make no mistake, God's not forgotten you. He hasn't ignored you. He is fully aware of everything you're going through. And in that awareness, he's not sitting there on his throne waiting to strike you down with a cane or with bitterness or with lightning and thunder. No, he is sitting there waiting for you and I to crawl up in his lap and just let him hold our broken selves there while dad holds us close and says it's okay to cry. It's okay to be mad. It's okay to be angry. It's okay to be in pain. It's okay because daddy's got you right now. He is a very powerful God. And yes, he does have wrath that he has poured out and that at some point in eternity he will pour out again. However, in the same breath, don't miss that from cover to cover, the story of the Bible is how God just longs to be close to you and to me. All he wants is intimacy. Intimacy.